In this episode of 2000 Books, we discuss the key mindsets and skill sets we need to have in order to improve ourselves. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Anthony Iannarino is an entrepreneur, international speaker, best-selling author, and a sales leader. Today we're talking about his USA Today bestseller, The Only Sales Guide You Will Ever Need, which distills the wisdom he has acquired over 25 years in his sales career. Anthony, I'm really excited to have you on the show and learn all about selling from you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And I'm really excited to talk about this topic because as an entrepreneur, I know the importance of sales. And I also know that it is not something that comes to me naturally. It's something that I had to learn. And I'm learning every day as to how to sell better. And I want you to teach us. So really excited about this. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll talk about whatever your resistance to selling is. And we'll help you break through that. No problem. Perfect. Perfect. So tell us your business story and what led you to writing this book. That book was a long, long journey, as you might imagine. I started selling when I was a kid, and had you told me I was selling, I would have said I wasn't, and I would never be a salesperson, and I would never want to be a salesperson. So that started, I mean, I think the first real sales job I had, I was probably 15 years old, and my first job was washing dishes, but my second job was calling people for the Muscular Dystrophy Association and asking people to have what at that time was a bike-a-thon. So they had to get a bunch of people to ride bikes to raise money for Muscular Dystrophy Association. And I worked that job cold calling, which I didn't know I was cold calling because I didn't know there was such a thing. And I did that for probably a month, and nothing happened. I mean, I, I didn't have anything happen. And I thought, this isn't the best job I could ever have. And I got a job at a skating rink, which was the best job I could ever have. As a 15-year-old boy surrounded by girls your age was the best <laughs> job I could imagine. It was great. And about two or three days after I started working at the skating rink, I got a call back. And it was the manager that said, you're the only person that's gotten anyone to do a bike-a-thon. And you actually have two bike-a-thons coming up in the next couple weeks because these people ended up saying yes. And we want you to come back. And I would love to tell you that the story was that I went back and that's where my career started, but there was no way I was leaving the skating rink. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. So I did that for a number of years, started a rock band, ended up going to California. I needed a job there. So I got into an operations role in staffing, which I knew how to do. And I had a manager who recognized that I was winning accounts, even though the sales force wasn't winning accounts. And he eventually forced me into outside sales, literally threatening me with my job if I didn't go into outside sales. So rather than having to move back to Columbus, Ohio from Los Angeles, I went into outside sales and I was horrible for a couple months. And I was a better salesperson when I wasn't selling, when I didn't think what I was doing was selling. I thought I was helping people with their problems. And their problem was we can't find the people we need. I could help them with that. So that's what I thought I was doing. And it took a couple months for that to wear off. And then I went back to doing what I was always doing before that, which was trying to help people. But in 1992, I had a grand mal seizure, had an arterial venous malformation on the right front temporal lobe, which really is a fancy way of saying a big giant group of arteries and veins that grew into a knot. And I had to come back to Columbus, Ohio, and I had to have a brain surgery and I wasn't allowed mm -hmm. to drive for two years. So I ended up in sales in the family business. And 
over that time from 1992 until probably 2007, I worked in that business and I grew our sales. I grew our company and I grew a sales force. And then I had other people ask me to start doing coaching and consulting. And then in 2009, I started speaking professionally and doing more of this work. And I've just kept a long list of things that I noticed about sales managers and salespeople. And a lot of times sales managers would say, this person's not a good salesperson. They just don't have it. And I would notice that there was just one or two things missing. Like they really weren't good at prospecting and they didn't really have good language choices. So their communication skill wasn't good. And if you could fix that, you could help the person. But rather than just look at it and say, this is pass or fail, it's one or zero, it's yes or no, black or white. I said, it's more complicated than that. And it ends up in the book, what you see is a framework that says there's nine attributes or mindset, behaviors, beliefs, Mm -hmm. and then there's eight skills. And if you've got these 17 elements together, you can be a really effective salesperson or what I would call a value creator or an effective entrepreneur because these attributes seem to just cross all sorts of domains, like discipline crosses a whole bunch of domains. Communication as a leader crosses a lot of domains. And I I decided I was going to write this book. And I actually had somebody reach out and say, we want to buy a book from you. Show us what you've got. And I showed them this and they said, we hate it. We have no idea why discipline or caring or resourcefulness is in a sales book. Hmm. And I pushed back and I said, well, you've probably never been in sales, have you? And they said, no, how did you know? And I said, well, if you had, you would know that these attributes are sort of the foundation of success. And I went without publishing the book for a long time and um, I decided to self-publish and Portfolio came along and bought the book. So the book is really my view of what you need to be, who you need to be, and what you need to do in two halves. And you can diagnose yourself or your sales team and say, I need to be better at this and I need to learn how to be better at this and improve your results. And it's a very, you know this because you've read it now, Mm -hmm. it's a very prescriptive book. And then rather than writing a book and saying, listen, you need to be a more valuable person and somebody worth buying from, I could say that. But then your question is, how do I do those things? And that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to give salespeople a book that would tell them how to become what they need to become. Yeah, and this is absolutely. And I think at some point, as you were talking, you said something very interesting, which was that it's not that like this specific salesperson doesn't just have it, they don't just cut it. It's the fact that they have a few things that they need to work on, that they need to improve on. Somehow we have this notion that a sales guy is just a born sales guy. He just knows he's born to sell. And if you don't know how to sell, then you should just stay away from it. That's not how it works. You can learn, you can train yourself to be a salesperson, you can train yourself to sell well. You can. And you know, it's an interesting observation that you make. And there are people who are born salespeople. There's no doubt about it. There are a lot of people who are born leaders. They they walk up, they take responsibility, and other people follow them because they have a certain set of attributes or skills or talents that they were born with. Those are rare, though. And you can't build a business just on the rare exception. You have to find the people who can grow. And, you know, I think the difference is if you have a football team and you're only going to pick 64 people, I mean, if that's what you've got and there's only 32 teams, yeah, they're all picking the best of the best and they have that kind of money. But as a business, if you're going to scale it up, you need people who can do the job and you can absolutely learn to sell. And I believe you can learn to lead too. Yeah, we can learn to sell. And uh, getting into the book, diving into the book, one of the first mindsets that you talked about as we just started discussing it was the idea of self-discipline. And it's really important because the most important commitments 
that we make is the commitment we make to ourselves and also one of the easiest ones to break for most people, right? I think for all people, that's the easiest one. There's no doubt about it. We would never treat other people like we treat ourselves when we make commitments. I mean, when we make a promise to another person, we keep that promise. But when we make a promise to ourselves, we don't keep it. And in sales, that works like this. Tomorrow, I'm going to make 25 prospecting calls because I didn't make any today. And then when tomorrow comes, it's not really tomorrow, it's today again. And we decide, well, I've got this other thing. So I promise tomorrow instead of 25, I'll make 50. And then we don't keep that promise. We would never do that to another person. If we put a calendar event, you know, in Outlook or in Google or wherever you put those, you wouldn't think of missing that. But we don't treat ourselves with the same respect. We promise to eat better tomorrow. This is January 5th, right? So we're five days beyond that day or that night where everybody promises that they're going to be much better this year than they were last year. And I would say we're probably 48 hours away from everybody going back on that resolution. <laughs> Absolutely. And you don't just say it. You actually walk the talk. You have been writing on your blog for the last seven years now, six years, seven years? Seven years. Every day. Every day minus 13. The first year that I started in uh, August, I had a chance to go to Tibet and go to Lhasa and then drive out to base camp on Mount Everest. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to blog from Tibet. <laughs> One, I want to pick up the culture and I really want to immerse myself in, you know, a fascinating, fabulous trip like nothing you can probably imagine. And then I'm going to be at Mount Everest. There's no way I'm going to have the bandwidth to do that, like the, the Internet bandwidth. China Mobile all the way to base camp is brilliant. I probably had better connectivity there than I have in Columbus, Ohio now. <laughs> And there's no one on that signal because no one's out there. But it was solid the whole way. And I should have blogged those 13 days. I didn't. But from December 28th, 2009 forward, minus that trip, it's every single day. Wow. That is serious discipline. And I know you just started your YouTube channel. I'm not started, but you started blogging, vlogging on your YouTube channel. And you are committed to doing that going forward every single day, right? Seven days in a row. So um, this will be day eight. Perfect. I know. I think you had a fascinating story uh, in the book about how when you went back to your family business, you had to start doing the cold calling. But somehow some manager didn't want you to do that, but you still did. What, what, what was it and what was the outcome of that? The, 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 it was a family business. So you think I would have preferential treatment, but that's not the way it works in most family businesses. You get to do the things that nobody else wants to do and you get to work earlier and later and you get greater responsibility whether you want it or not. I came back to the family business after having a brain surgery and there was already a sales manager there and she already had a team. And when I started, the sales manager and her team walked into my little tiny office and they dropped a, a list on my desk of 600 accounts and 600 accounts in a staffing business. I mean, that would be an exceptionally booming business with one office. I mean, you can't serve 600 clients out of the office that we were in. So I was stunned at how well they were doing. I'm looking at this list going, this is amazing. I, and I asked her, I said, so these are all of our clients? And she said, well, they're not our clients, but we're calling on them. So you can't call on them. These are our prospects that we're calling on. And I'm looking at it going, that's gotta be every company in Columbus. I mean, they, they literally left me with nothing. But I'm not going to make any waves because that's not what you do in a family business. You put your head down and you do the work. So she did not want you to call because... They thought they were going to call on him. But, you know, okay. they weren't calling on him and they weren't winning him. And they were all the big, well-known companies. 
And that's what they thought. They thought, we've got all the big well-known companies. We're not going to let them have any of them. And so I sat down with a phone book. And in those days, there was no internet. This is 1992. So there was an internet, but it isn't the internet that you know now. If you were going to try to load an image, you could go to bed and get up the next day, and then you'd have your image. <laughs> Uh, 1200 baud over a telephone modem. And all we had was the white pages. And at the back of that, that book of the phone book, there was a blue section of all the businesses. And literally what I had to do was sit down and take their list, look at the list, make sure that the company name wasn't the next number in the phone book. And I literally sat down and dialed starting at A. And I skipped all the things that I knew weren't going to be users like, you know, kinder care, daycare centers, 7-Elevens, uh, funeral homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I skipped over anything that was an obvious, not going to use temporary staffing, but I literally just started calling. And it turned out that there were just hidden gems of companies that spent a ton of money on temporary staffing that you would never know their name. You would never think twice driving by their building. They wouldn't look like somebody that spent a lot of money. And I continued to just win one after another. And the more I stayed on the phone and the more appointments I booked, the better my results grew. And then I eventually had more sales than the sales manager, and then eventually her and her whole team. And then they all left, and I started building my own team after that. But it was an aversion to really doing the work. A lot of people look at what they think is, this has to be a good lead, but you have to dig and you have to really build that list. Yeah, And it means you just have to do the work. So you disciplined, you were disciplined to just call and call and call and call and call everyone on the list to get to where you wanted to go. Now, what is, what is it for you, Anthony? Because a lot of people would say, well, I don't have the discipline that Anthony has. But I'm sure, again, it's one of those things where you're just not born with discipline. There are some rituals, there are some practices that you have, or there are some things you do to make that discipline happen. What is it? How do you create discipline in your life? I, I, I've had it for a long time. I mean, even when I was a kid and I fronted a rock band, we rehearsed every night. Every night from 7 to 10, we rehearsed. Sunday night, we rehearsed. You're going to go out and hang out with your friends, not till you're done rehearsing. When we were in L.A., Friday and Saturday night, everybody goes to the Sunset Strip. We don't go until after we're done rehearsing. Literally, we were that disciplined. And uh, I think th- this is what it is. There's a couple things that I would say if you're listening to this. Um, if you are poor when you grow up and you have a lot of adversity, you you sort of get wired in a way that says work and hustling and producing is really important because you have a certain set of experiences that lead you to believe that. Uh, at least it does for a lot of people who hustle. And if you get wired that way, the discipline comes really easy. For a lot of other people who haven't had a lot of adversity, you just have to start thinking about if you want to do meaningful, purposeful work. If you want to figure out what your why is and then live to that, whatever it is, until you know what that why is and how short your time is to do it, you may not hustle. But once you hook on to what's my mission, what am I here for? What am I going to do with this little bit of time that I have? And if you're young, like you are, it doesn't feel like you have a very short time, but I promise you it goes by so fast. And if you want it to go faster, have children because then it speeds up almost to warp speed. But if, if you want to do something, you only have right now, this minute, and you have to get up and every day just decide, this is what I'm here for. I have to go live this purpose. And then you'll start hustling and you'll find the discipline to do all kinds of things. That's great. Yeah, you have to find that purpose behind it. And that's pretty funny you say that <laughs> you should go get children in order to accelerate it because it seems like that's the baby effect is for real for a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. That's when they get into the hustle mode. 
Yeah, and you know, because we're talking to and about entrepreneurs, I mean, I'll just say this. If your idea right now in California, if your idea of entrepreneurship is, I'm going to start something so I can flip it like uh, Instagram, you, you're not an entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not. That's not, what entrepreneur, that's not what entrepreneurship is. It's building a business and sustaining a business and growing a business. And it's the ugly parts that nobody likes, like selling or, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, like, I don't want to be a CFO. I don't want to be in charge of the money. Well, guess what? You're in charge of the money, too. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be very well-rounded and do a lot of things that you may not like, but you own the company mm-hmm. and you're an entrepreneur. That's what you do. So if you're going to own the company, you got to own the company, which means you may clean the bathrooms. You may do the books and you may sell. Absolutely. That's great. So before we carry on with the interview, I have an important question for you. Do you consistently take action on the books you read? Because a lot of research has now proven that there is really no learning without action. So if you're not taking action on what you're reading, here's a simple fix for you. Head on over to 2000books.com slash summary and download 10-minute action guides of the 10 greatest books for entrepreneurs. And they're all for free. From age-old classics like Think and Grow Rich to modern-day bestsellers like The Lean Startup. We have some of the greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs there. So head on over to 2000books.com slash summary and download these free 10-minute action guides. Or you can even text the word summary to 44222 and get these action guides. Okay, now back to the interview. So let's talk about another really important idea, another really important mindset I would say, as you say in the book, which is about caring. And as the guy said earlier on, the guy who didn't really understand it, he said, well, what's caring they doing in a book like sales? So help yeah. us understand that. Well, you know, most people don't associate caring with selling. This is probably, this isn't a unique insight that I came up with. Other people have had this insight before mm-hmm. me, but I think my realization as a young man was, selling is something you do to people. And that's what I saw being done because my experience was limited to car salespeople and things like that. So I thought it was about manipulation and persuasion. And I thought it was self-oriented where they were trying to hustle me to get as much money out of me as they could. But then as I started to sell and started thinking about what it was that I was doing that was allowing me to win business, it wasn't any of those things. And I had a manager who helped me see that by asking me, like, all the things you think about salespeople, you don't do any of those things. And you win business. How is that? You know, how is that that you can do that without being those things? And I hadn't thought about it. But if you really want to get results, you have to be other oriented and not self oriented. You have to understand that your job in sales is to try to create value for someone else and to try to get them an outcome that they can't get without you. And you have to think about this, particularly as an entrepreneur, if they could get the outcome that they wanted without your product, your service, or your solution, they'd already be getting it. So now you have an obligation as somebody who's going to be a value creator that cares about other people to go and get in front of them and say, I can help you. I can help you get better results than you're getting now. I have something here for you that's worth your time and attention. And when you believe that passionately and you really want to help and serve other people, 
selling ends up to be a pretty easy thing. Yeah, that sincere desire to help them rather than just take their money for an exchange or in sometimes some you know we've uh, there's this association in the in society the sleazy salesman or the oily salesman or something like that but that's not how it has to be it actually is much easier if we sincerely want to help this is what's funny how old are you i am 38 now okay 38 you're an old man no you're still a young man <laughs> i teach undergrads at Capital University where I went to school. And when I teach personal selling to young people, undergrads particularly, so they're somewhere between 18 and 22 years old, I ask them to describe for me all the words that they think indicate somebody who would be a salesperson. So what are they? And they say manipulative, they say selfish, they say pushy, they sometimes say asshole, they say a lot of things like that. And I write them all down on a big whiteboard for them until I've got a pretty good collection of negative words. And then I ask the class to raise their hand if one of their parents works in sales. And I don't know, 20 to 30 percent of the hands go up. And then I always try to find the meek person that's kind of shy, kind of quiet, doesn't hold their hand up very much. And I say, is it your mom or your dad that works in sales? I always want to get a mom. <laughs> so if they say my dad, I'm like, what's your dad do? Then I, when I get to the mom, I say this. So you mean to tell me your mom is a pushy, selfish you know, self-oriented, manipulating, conniving person. And they go, absolutely not. My mom's not any of those things. Mm. My mom, her clients love her. She has great relationships with them. They trust her. She helps them with all kinds of things. And I say, no, 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 no. That's not what you said. <laughs> you said that salespeople are all these things. And, and they start to realize this stereotype for some reason persists. Most of the people that say that, their experience with salespeople is nothing like that. I mean, that's true for most of us. If you're in the B2B world or you're an entrepreneur, you don't meet a lot of salespeople that are like that because those tactics of manipulation and self-orientation and coercion, those don't work. And the reason that people don't do them anymore is they were taught to do them for so long, they stopped being effective because buyers had more choices. They no longer had to work with somebody like that. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to embody any of those things. The more other-oriented you are and the more you try to help other people, the easier it becomes. Yeah. I hope that helps entrepreneurs listening to this because if you feel that sales is something you have to do to somebody, then you're never going to feel good about it. But if you think it's something that you're doing for and with them, then you're going to embrace it and say – this is a great gig going out and trying to help other people get better results than they can get without me. Yeah, it is a it is a mindset shift. It's such a mindset shift that we need to cultivate, which is not that we're trying. To, it's not like we're trying to get something from the person. We're on this journey together. We're trying to help them get where they want to go while we get where we want to go. So it's that's right. Yeah, it's a togetherness rather than us versus them kind of feeling. That's right. Yeah. Another story that I really liked in the book, which was about you calling this guy for a long time. It's the story of persistence. Tell us about that story. Yeah, the company was called LCI Communications. It was a telecom company, and uh, it was right on the outer belt of 270, which is the freeway that goes all the way around Columbus. And I saw the building and I had a feeling because of their parking lot being full that they had a lot of employees. So I started calling on them. This is a day when the only CRM was by a guy named Harvey McKay who wrote Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive, which was a New York Times bestseller sales guy, great speaker. And uh, he had this software called Sharkware. And basically it was a way to collect information about clients long before there was a real CRM. 
And you can still go download the McKay 66, which are 66 questions you should ask and know about your clients, which is crazy the detail that Harvey would find out about his clients. Mm. But it, it let you record the number of times you called somebody and you could count and see how many times you called. So when I called this particular contact and he answered the phone, it was my 76th call in a row. So every week I dialed through the numbers of people I thought actually used temporary staffing. And I got to his number and uh, I dialed the number and this was the first time he'd ever picked up the phone. And he, he picked up and answered and I told him who I was and what I wanted. And he said, you have called me a million times. And I said, actually, this is 76. And he said, well, it feels like a million. <laughs> and he was not impressed with my persistence. And I promise you, it wasn't my persistence wasn't like a professional persistence. It was like a nuisance persistence every single week with nothing new to say. And he said, listen, I have orders. If you come out right now, I'll give you the orders. And literally, I got in my car and I drove to the location and picked up the business. And it taught me that sometimes just sheer pigheadedness, just dogged determination is what it takes to succeed in sales. And when you look at people who succeed, not just sales, entrepreneurship too. I mean, entrepreneurs, I think a lot of times give up too early mm -hmm. because something doesn't get traction just because it's hard mm -hmm. and you haven't sold it long enough. But persistence is what allows you to succeed. And the one thing that I would tell you, I know probably more than anything now, is that given enough time and given enough persistent energy against any obstacle, the obstacle eventually yields. It doesn't matter what the obstacle is. If it's, if it's uh, putting a man on the moon, landing on Mars, curing cancer, given enough time and energy, those problems will all be solved because that's what human beings have done for three and a half million years. It's why we persist. That's great. That's why in many ways, the joy of entrepreneurship is in making it happen even in the face of all odds. That's that's the fun part of it. And uh, yeah. personally for me, that's where I get a kick to be able to do that, to be able to change things, even though they may not feel like they will change right now. It's funny because there's no great story that starts out, boy starts business, business succeeds wildly, boy, you know, retires happily. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you, you got to have the uphill fight, right? Yeah, yeah. And that... even, even Facebook, you've got the story about the lawsuits and uh, all the stuff that happened at Harvard and all that. You need a story. There needs to be some arc. You have to push up against something for the story to be interesting and for it to be worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just the nature of this world without persisting through the odds without persisting through the difficult times. Sometimes the most important things will just elude us until we push for what we truly, what we truly are after. That's true. I'm a hundred percent agreement. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about the mindsets, but I want to shift our focus a little bit to the skill set. And uh, I think one of the skill sets that you say is essential to being to to be a good salesperson, to be able to sell, is to be able to diagnose to to diagnose what the problem is, to to understand our customers. To as I think uh, was it uh, Stephen Covey who said, "Seek first to understand, then to be understood." Yes. That's right. Yeah. And that's so important. That's so powerful. It's it's in all walks of life. And in fact, I feel like uh, sometimes when you're learning selling or when I'm learning sales, it's actually I'm learning how to learn how to relate to people. Yeah. Oh, that's a big part of it. Yeah, and this is one of the most important things which is diagnosing, which is trying to understand where they're coming from. 
So tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's even more than that. I think a lot of times when you're selling, you you look very, very shallow. Uh, you take a shallow look at the problem. And I think that, that that is the problem for a lot of salespeople. We have something that we want to sell. We think we know what the solution is already. And so we're really half listening and we're really not trying to get to the root cause of the issue. But a good diagnosis is really about the root cause. What's really causing the problem? And I'll just say this about entrepreneurs in California specifically because of Silicon Valley. I get a lot of calls from entrepreneurs and a lot of emails that say, we've solved the problem of selling. We now have a software that does this. And that's the, the thing that the problem that, that in their mind that's they're solving with their product isn't a problem for people. And I'll, I'll try to give you an example. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes and they say, we've created a platform where salespeople can share prospects with other salespeople and they can trade and make introductions. And that sounds like a really good idea. But no salesperson gets up and says, I wish I knew more salespeople who would give me their leads that, that won't be a conflict because I sell something different. That, that that's not what salespeople do. I mean, we don't think that our problem is we need somebody to share leads with and somebody to share leads with us. Great platform, they go out of business immediately because it's not the real root cause of people's problem. And it's nice to get referrals and it's nice to do introductions, but you don't do that with strangers on a platform. You do it with the friends that you know and people that you show up at networking events and you make introductions. They're trying to apply technology to part of a human relationship that doesn't lend itself to technology yet. It might in the future, but it doesn't right now. And you have to go deep and say, what problem do they really have? And what's the right way to solve that problem? And there's the presenting problem. That's what people say the problem is. And then there's the real problem. Mm -hmm. And you have to find out what the real problem is if you really want to help people. And you'll find out it's not what you think it is. So you think when you sell temporary staffing like I have, you think, well, this person has a turnover problem, and it's because they're not getting good quality people. And then you find out, no, they're getting really good quality people. They don't treat people very well. So if I really want to help them, I have to go tell them, stop treating people poorly, or you're not going to keep anybody, and you're going to spend more money churning people. And if you want to be a trusted advisor, if you want to be somebody people look to to help them solve business problems, you're the one that goes and has that difficult conversation. And th- that's what you have to do. But if you really care and you're really trying to help people, you help them solve their real problem, maybe not the problem that you set out to solve. Yeah. And you touched on quite a few points there. And one of them I'd like to iterate on again, which is the fact that in sales, we have to go with the mindset of first trying to diagnose, first trying to understand. And especially as entrepreneurs, we're really guilty. What we think is, well, I'll create this product and then I'll sell it to the customers. But that is the last, like we try to sell too early. That's not the point to sell. We first need to understand the customer. We need to understand their pains and then we need to create the product. Somehow in the world of entrepreneurship, we've got it the other way around and we think, I just need to create the product and start selling the product. I think that's because of technology. I mean, I think it's because technology can do things. Um, I mean, there are softwares that I've seen that people say, I can predict whether or not a deal is going to close. And I say, how? And they say, we read all the emails. And uh, I said, so you, you have a context engine where you can actually pick up the context of the communication that recognizes buying signals inside email communications between a client and a, uh, and a salesperson. 
And they say, no, but we can see the frequency of the emails. Okay, so what you can do is count. And counting is interesting and it's good, but it doesn't tell us anything about the context of the communication. You could have a communication saying, this isn't going to work for us. Please stop bothering me. And in that particular setting, that, that would look to them like a deal that's getting closer. And I think technology lets us do things that we think are a good idea because we can count, but maybe we don't need to count. Maybe we're counting something that doesn't need to be counted, mm-hmm. and maybe we need to go deeper. So I think that's a challenge for – I'm challenging tech entrepreneurs specifically there. But I think it is – it's generally directionally right. So you have something that you want to do. Do you want to do a market test to see if if there's a, a valid case for it? Then go talk to customers and find out. Mm-hmm. Would you pay for this? What's interesting to me about entrepreneurship now is people think it's about VC money and angel investors, and it's not. It's about grinding it out and doing the work. And if and they say things like, well, when we're big enough, then we'll go and we'll start trying to acquire clients. The best case study to find out whether or not your product is validated and is going to have market value is go to customers mm-hmm. because you can get all the money in the world and then find out customers still don't want what you sell. Absolutely. That is the ultimate test we have. And that's when we actually need to diagnose and we need to understand rather than just go and sell. So, yeah. so that's, that's, that's really right. key. That's really key. And uh, I think something you said was really powerful there. You said uh, uh, in the book, you said small salespeople ask weak questions. So yeah. explain that to me. What are weak questions and what are powerful questions? Yeah, so a powerful question is a question that makes the person decide that they have a compelling case to change. And a weak question is something that allows them to keep their existing beliefs. And I'll try to give you a story to illustrate this because you're a story guy. Mm -hmm. I was with a client in France and he said to me, I'm going to fire my entire sales force because they suck at closing and they suck at negotiating and I'm going to start over. And I asked the question, well, first I said, let me make sure I understand what your premise is. Your premise is your salespeople don't know how to close and they don't know how to negotiate And the result here for you is that you think you should fire all of them and start over. And he said, that's exactly right. I said, okay, I agree with you that your diagnosis is right. They're not good at closing and they don't know how to negotiate. But my question was this, what do we do with the third group? And he looked at me and said, I don't understand what you're saying. And I said, what do we do with the third group? And he said, I I don't get it. And I said, listen, when we fire the first group, we hire the second group and we fire them for the exact same reasons. When we get the third group, what are we going to do different? And he said, you're saying that it's me. And I said, I'm not saying that it's you. I'm saying that it's you and your whole management team. And he said, what are you saying? And I said, you're not giving them the mindset. You're not giving them the skill sets. You're not giving them the toolkits. They aren't being properly trained. They're not being coached. And when you hire the second group, you're going to be just as mad at them. And they're going to fire another group of people. And uh, we had an unpleasant conversation there for a couple minutes, but I had the rapport to sustain that conversation. And he, he said, what do we need to do? That's, that's a more difficult question. I had to challenge him to get him to think about what he was doing. Mm. And the best salespeople are willing to go there and have difficult conversations so that you can get to the root cause of the issue rather than just dealing with the presenting problem. That's great. That's great. This is this is this is a lot of great learning here, Anthony. And uh, we just you know we're just talking about diagnosing and understanding. But what I want to do now is kind of put a closure to this interview by having you give us some sort of specific action item, some homework, especially for our entrepreneurial friends who are listening. 
when they're starting off and selling, what could be three specific action items that they could take away and apply to their business today as they're getting into sales? The the first thing I would say, if you're an entrepreneur and you've started a business, the number one thing that you have to do is shift your mindset to say, the two most important things that I do as an entrepreneur every single day is sales and marketing. Those are the two things that come first. And I know they think, well, no, I need to work on higher level things like strategy and this other thing. No, you don't. If you don't put sales and marketing first, your business won't succeed. A business exists to create a customer. That's what Drucker said. A business exists to create a customer. And the way that you grow a business is to sell and market and then innovate. That's what you do. That's that's the whole game. So shift the focus from everything except sales and marketing to sales and marketing come first every day. The second thing I would say, go sit down with your prospective clients without trying to sell them anything. Don't try to sell them anything. Try to understand what problems do they believe that they have that are actually worth solving? What do they think is worth solving? Not what do you think is worth solving? Because you might think, well, counting the number of communications um, of emails would be a problem worth solving because then I would know what this looks like. But if they don't think it's a problem worth solving, it's not a problem worth solving. So I think that the second thing I would say is go sit down with them with the intention of, I need to learn from you. What are the business challenges that you have that if somebody could help you with in this particular area that we're interested in, that would be worth you paying for. So that would be the second thing. And I have to give them a third thing. Uh, these are awesome, by the way. So I, I can give you a third one too. Sure. Um, pick up a book on selling. Pick up my book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. Pick up Jeb Blunt's Fanatical Prospecting. Pick up Mike Weinberg's New Sales Simplified. Um, pick up Mark Hunter. High profit prospecting. And pick pick up these books and start educating yourself. And if you don't want to do that, go out and read blogs. Read blogs about sales and study that craft because your business as an entrepreneur is going to succeed or fail based on the speed with which you can get new clients. And it's very interesting to me. A lot of entrepreneurs think about angel investment and VC money and scaling up. And they think about that prematurely. I mean, the best money for you the best money you have is client money. Mm. That's the very best money. The VC money is expensive. The angel investor money is expensive. It's expensive money and you're giving away part of your heart and soul because you're giving up your business way too early. Go sell and make some money and, and grow organically for a while. You don't have to give up the business to grow. And if you learn how to sell, you'll find out, I can go ahead and do a lot of this without having to get any money from anybody. Hi. Clients will give it to you. This is great. This is great advice. Uh, and uh, Anthony, the books you mentioned—they're all—they're all great books, by the way. Um, we're going to have Mark Hunter on the on the podcast as well. And for all our listeners who want to listen to these books, who want to read this, by the way, I listened to your book, and uh, any of our listeners can go get this book on two thousand books dot com slash free. That's an Audible subscription they can sign up for and get this book for free as they sign up. So that's something they can do as well. Awesome. And uh, it took a long time to read that book. That was like eight hours in a studio straight through. Oh, wow. Well, I listen at 2x and 2.5x. So I, <laughs> I got through my books fast. <laughs> um, I sound like a chip. Oh, I, I, I enjoy it. I actually get distracted if I'm listening too slowly because then my <laughs> mind goes off and does other things. But if I'm listening really fast, I'm super focused. 
Interesting. I might have to give that a try. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's a it's a beautiful hack and it works. Um, <laughs> so Anthony, you uh, you've been you've been you've delivered some great value here. You you taught us a lot of great things, but you have so many other things. I mean, so much other. Uh, knowledge out there that's on your website now coming on your YouTube channel. Tell us where to find you and all the good stuff. TheSalesBlog.com. That's the main hub for everything that I do. And there's a follow button there at the top right corner. If you go there, you can follow me on YouTube or LinkedIn. If you link in with me, I'll link in back or Twitter or whatever else makes sense. Mm. And you're also running uh, some sort of a mastermind call right now for the book, right? I am, yeah. It's 17 weeks. We just finished week one. And uh, you get one week for each chapter. And it's a private Facebook group. And I think we have about 430 people in that program right now. And all you have to do is send me the receipt. Perfect. So all your listeners, if you get this book and uh, want to learn from Anthony, this is a great way to get started on that and join his calls. Anthony, uh, this has been this has been a joy. This has been a privilege. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. So my ambitious friends, are you aware that we have a thriving YouTube channel with over 11,000 subscribers and over 40 video summaries of some of the greatest business and personal development books of all time? Books like How to Win Friends and Influence People, Getting Things Done, Good to Great, and a whole lot more. You have to come check it out at 2000books.com slash YouTube. And the link will also be in the show description below. So you can just click on it and make sure to hit subscribe so that you will know when we have a new video summary out for you. Okay, I have a question for you. How much is your time really worth? I mean, in dollars per hour. Is it worth anything more than $3.33 per hour? If yes, how do you use all the extra time during the day, like the time in the gym or while doing your laundry or running errands or driving or doing grocery or running or walking or doing chores around your home? Because I use my extra time to listen to audiobooks. So if I bought an audiobook for $10 and listened to it for three hours, I paid $3.33 per hour for that knowledge. So if you're making anything more than $3.33 per hour, I think you should be able to invest that money in constantly upgrading your mind. And audiobooks are definitely one of the cheapest investments with the highest ROI, in my opinion. So if you want to try out what I'm saying, you can give Audible a try by signing up for a free trial membership and get any audiobook for free. And if you don't like it, just cancel the trial membership and you won't be charged anything. However, you still get to keep the audiobook for free forever. So pretty good deal, right? And you've got nothing to lose but a free audiobook to gain. So to avail of this offer, just head on over to 2000books.com slash free or text the word audiobooks to 44222. Now that's one word, audiobooks to 44222, and we'll get back to you with the details. <music> 